Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 25, The Nazis, Part 3. Last time we talked about Hulda Joost, a German Adventist with close ties to the Nazi regime. She was a key part of church leaders' strategy to win tolerance from the Nazi government, traveling to America to preach the virtues of Adventism or Nazism or both? I don't know. Anyways, her goal was to win greater tolerance for Adventist believers back in Germany, which did not succeed. Now, over the past couple of episodes, we have shown how the Adventist church didn't meet the Nazi challenge with consistent courage. And the key word there is consistent. It's not that Adventists didn't make a stand on some issues. They did, but it wasn't a consistent courage. So I wanted to begin this final episode in our Nazi story by situating those Adventists in the religious landscape of their day in Germany. Because if every church stood up and opposed the Nazis, you know, the Baptists did, the Lutherans did, the Catholics did, then the Adventist strategy of appeasement was inexplicably cowardly, right? That would raise even more questions. So I think a brief glimpse at other small Christian denominations can help us better appreciate the relative value of the Adventist approach to the Nazi problem. Did Adventists handle Nazism better than most Christians? Worse? Or was it about the same? Hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, too bad. We're moving on. Let's start with the Mormons. The Momos! Or as they have recently expressed a preference to be known as, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And with all due respect to our Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints listeners, we're going to stick with Mormon because it will double the length of this podcast if I have to say all of that. I am a Seventh-day Adventist, believe me. I understand. There's a reason why we just use the word Adventist in here all the time. It's too long. It's a mouthful. So, please accept my uh, my respect as I just call you guys Mormons. There's this story that the Mormon scholar David Nelson tells that's a fantastic way of diving into this subject. He shares how his 13-year-old son learned that prisoners in Nazi concentration camps wore colored triangles to represent their reason for being there. Thieves and other common criminals wore green. Communists and political prisoners wore red. Homosexuals wore pink triangles. Jehovah's Witnesses wore purple. And of course, the Jews wore yellow. And not just one triangle, but two triangles set in the shape of a star of David. And this 13-year-old boy asks, Dad, what colored triangles did the Mormons wear in concentration camps? Now, the same question might be asked by a Seventh-day Adventist kid. Imagine it's your son or your daughter looking into your eyes with that innocent hunger to know the story of their people. How do you answer that question? Because the Mormons and the Adventists didn't have their own colored stars in concentration camps because there were very few whom the Nazis ever saw as threatening enough to send to a camp. The parallels between the Adventists and the Mormons at this time are are stunning. They're almost mirror images. 
Now, there were somewhere between 11,000 and 15,000, depending on who you ask, Mormons in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Okay, outside of America, there were more Mormons in Central Europe than anywhere else, which was also true for Adventists. Okay, outside of America, there were more Adventists in Central Europe than anywhere else. Okay, that's what I mean. Like Adventists, many Mormons appreciated the sobriety and clean living of Adolf Hitler and saw him as a godly man. Like Adventists, they emphasized their common ground with the Nazis to build bridges in order to gain or keep privileges. Like Adventists, they were interrogated and harassed by the Gestapo. Like Adventists, some Mormons were anti-Semitic and others helped the Jews. Like Adventists, Mormons saw welfare work as one of the best places that they could cooperate with the regime. Like Adventists, post-war Mormon historians portrayed the church as the victims of the Nazi regime and downplayed or ignored the enthusiastic cooperation between church and Reich. And like Adventists, Mormons printed pro-Nazi tracts which were so effusive in their desire to build a connection between church and Reich that, that the Nazis blushed and made them stop printing because they, did, they didn't want there to be that that close of a relationship between them and the Mormons. They wanted to keep them at arm's length. So the Nazis were, were pushing them away like, hey, 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 you guys are trying to get too close to us. You're trying to identify too closely with us. Step back a little bit. And this, this list of similarities goes on and on and on. Now, looking for differences between Mormons and Adventists, David Nelson says, quote, Christian scientists and Seventh-day Adventists did only what was necessary to survive. The Mormons, by contrast, looked for new opportunities to exploit national socialism for the benefit of their church, end quote. And in another place, he added this, quote, Christian scientists and Seventh-day Adventists chose a non-confrontational conformist path that caused them to forfeit cherished aspects of their liturgical worship but resulted in few lives lost and fewer sullied reputations. Both Adventists and scientists saluted the Nazi flag, sent their fathers and sons into the military, and otherwise conformed as well as Protestant and Catholic Germans during the Third Reich. They courted no special favor with the Nazis, but instead became skilled chameleons, blending into Hitler's world. They will never be remembered for their courage. Likewise, they will never be accused of collaboration." End quote. Adventists became skilled chameleons blending into Hitler's world. What a fantastic, evocative use of language. But as we've seen over the past few episodes, this is too generous toward Adventists. If Adventists only accommodated themselves to the Nazis out of, out of necessity, if they only wanted to blend in in order to survive, then how do you explain Hulda Yost's trip to America, praising Hitler to the moon every chance she got? If the goal was merely to win tolerance for her church at home, then why didn't she just slip into the general conference session, make some artfully worded statement about how great the Nazis are in this one particular area, and then go home? No, we have to come face to face with the reality that plenty of Adventists wanted more than just toleration. Some of them bought into the Hitler myth. Some of them were a little bit more enthusiastic than perhaps a motivation of mere survival called for. Now, knowing this, it's cringeworthy to read David Nelson on this point. 
In one place, he writes, quote, The Christian scientists and Seventh-day Adventists found no such opportunities to boast of common worldviews with Hitlerism. The Adventists, who subscribed to dietary restrictions as strict as the Mormon's code, never bragged that Hitler was a teetotaler, end quote. Bro, why aren't you listening to this podcast? We bragged, man. We bragged about the same things you did with Hitler. Oh, look at this clean living guy. He's a vegetarian. He doesn't drink. He's an Adventist. He's one of us. And, 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 and David Nelson, bless his heart, I spent a lot of time in the South, okay? Bless his heart. He's, he's trying, you know, he's a Mormon writing about Mormons. He's trying to say, hey, we failed even more than the Christian scientists and the Adventists. You know, we went much further than they did. And, and here I am sitting here saying, buddy, we went farther than you think. The Mormons saw Hitler as a Mormon. Oh, man, the, the, the stories that proliferated about Hitler uh, abound. I mean, the, the Mormons talk about how uh, Hitler was, was a secret Mormon. Adventists also shared the story that, that back with his, his, uh, Hitler's Munich uprising in 1923, that when Hitler was, was wounded as the government was putting down his, uh, his, his bid to overthrow them, Hitler was wounded in that two Adventist ladies helped him up on the street and handed him a great controversy. I mean, it's it's crazy when you see the similarities here. When you realize that the, the Mormons thought Hitler might be a secret Mormon, you know, that he had read Mormon literature and he admired the Mormons. And the Avenus said, Oh yeah, we gave we gave Hitler Avenus literature too back when he was a nobody. And he's he, you know, he's Avenus didn't think that Hitler was a secret Avenus, but but you know, we gave him our literature just like the Mormons gave him their literature, and, and then both groups thought he was one of them, at least in sympathy. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? How do you explain that desire to want to believe those things? Is it because they were both religious minorities in a religious world dominated by much larger, much older, much more powerful, entrenched religious communities, Lutherans, Catholics, and so on. And, and the Mormons and Adventists were just looking for a champion. They were looking for a David. They were looking for a Constantine, someone to carry their banner to the point where they just, they wanted to believe it was true that Hitler was one of them. But Nelson is right that Mormons did go much, much further than Adventists in some ways. And, and the myths that spread among the Mormons, they, they, they were much more deep-seated, perhaps. They were certainly much more widespread. There was more of these myths. They spread like COVID among the Mormons in Germany. Wait, I'm sorry. Is that, is that too soon to be using a COVID uh, simile? Yeah? All right. Well, forgive me. Some saw Germany's social policy being formed due to Mormon influence, right? So they believed that Hitler had read some of these Mormon practices or was familiar with them, you know, this idea of a fast day. And so when Hitler said, hey, skip a meal and save that money and donate it to one of our Nazi causes, you know, they thought that maybe Hitler got that idea from the Mormons. Of course, as we said, some saw Hitler as a secret Mormon, Rumors spread that, the, that Hitler had attended a Mormon funeral in Austria. 
Incognito. Even into the 1980s. This is a story that kills me. One Mormon shared a photograph of him with his friends taken in the 1930s, and he pointed to one of his friends. He says, you see that guy with the mustache there in the middle? That's Hitler. Of course, it wasn't actually Hitler who didn't give a flying fig about Mormons or Adventists. But it's fascinating to see how desperately some of these people wanted Hitler to be Mormon even 50 years or 40 years after the war. Still pointing to a photograph with pride saying, you see that guy among my circle of friends? That was Hitler. Some Mormons, including the wife of the German-Austrian mission president, got some face time with Hitler. The mission president later told researchers, quote, when mother, meaning his wife, got involved with this national women's organization and was indirectly involved with Hitler, it was a great relief to us, I tell you. Things went along very well. We didn't have any trouble to speak of, end quote. When he says he, that his wife was indirectly involved with Hitler, of course, Hitler didn't speak English and she didn't speak German. So they were in the same company, but it's unlikely they ever spoke to each other, at least not without an interpreter. Another Mormon was a mechanic. Built machines, assembled them, fixed them. He worked at Auschwitz. The Mormons had far deeper connections with the Nazi regime than Adventists did. All right, you remember that Hulda Yost wanted nothing more than that face-to-face -face meeting with Hitler. She never got it, but the Mormons did. So I don't think it's an issue of the Mormons having gone further and cozying up to the beast than Adventists did. I mean, they, they did. But I think the, the thing that I wish David Nelson understood was it's not that Adventists didn't want to get that close, okay? It's just that they failed to get closer than they did. Is it fair to say that most Mormons, like most Adventists, just wanted to keep their head down and get by? Sure. Were there Mormons who despised the Nazis and worked for their ruin? Of course. There's a famous example of four Mormon teenagers led by Helmut Hübner and his friends. I apologize for my pronunciation of everything. If you're German or whatever, speak German, I apologize. Just something you have to roll with here. Anyways, these four teenagers, uh, they used church printers to produce anti-Nazi pamphlets. And of course, they were caught. Mormon leaders scrambled to distance themselves from the young men, and when the party demanded that the church excommunicate Hubner, well, the church complied. Though Hubner's excommunication was rescinded after the war, the memory of how he defied the Nazis was repressed by the church for decades. Even in their post-war memory blocking, Mormons went further than Adventists, who had, of course, a bit less that needed forgetting. The American religion everyone loves to compare Adventists and Mormons to during these years were the Jehovah's Witnesses. Fun little personal story. A Jehovah's Witness visited my home once. We got to talking about pacifism. I was trying to build some common ground with the guy by appreciating that, hey, you know, both of our churches don't like fighting in wars. You know, we're both pacifists, which is, I mean, not technically true, you know, but close enough when you're just looking to start a conversation. And the witness elder, I'll never forget, give me this withering look. And he said, while your people were killing each other in the war, mine were dying in concentration camps. Which is not technically true, but you know, close enough when you're just trying to pick a fight. The witnesses were entirely inflexible when it came to the Nazis. The witnesses wanted to be left alone. 
but refused to salute the Nazi flag or profess any allegiance to Hitler, and as a result, they were tortured, perhaps more than any other Christian group. Up to half of the 20,000 Jehovah's Witnesses in Germany were imprisoned in concentration camps, with thousands of them dying. They were isolated in the camps from other prisoners because the guards didn't want them trying to convert the other prisoners. And this allowed the Witnesses to stay together and stand together with very few renouncing their faith for their freedom. One historian wrote that the SS guards were, quote, never quite equal to the challenge offered to them by the Jehovah's Witnesses, end quote. As a result, though, Witnesses were often given more freedom and more responsibility because they could be trusted not to break the law and escape. The SS guards also trusted the witnesses, and only the witnesses, to shave their faces with a straight-edge razor. Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, begrudgingly admired the fanatical devotion of the witnesses to their cause and suggested that this is how all Nazi party members should be. Now, there's much to admire here in the stand that the witnesses took, and you wouldn't be the first person to wish that Adventists should have taken a similar stand in refusing to suck up to the Nazis. And yet those accounts of witnesses shaving SS guards or guarding SS valuables or witnesses being entrusted to take gangs of prisoners out of the camp to work, trusted to not let those prisoners escape, mind you, makes you realize that they really didn't take a principled stand against the Nazis. They never plotted. They never rebelled. They didn't speak up on behalf of the Jews, at least that I'm aware of. The witnesses were simply determined not to win tolerance by cooperating with the state. They just wanted to be left alone. They didn't want to pledge allegiance to the Nazi regime or any other regime on the planet. But that didn't mean that they were going to actively work on behalf of justice, on behalf of charity for those oppressed by the Nazi regime. If you're looking for a church that offered active resistance to Nazism, you're going to have to look at the Confessing Church, that union of protesting pastors like Bart, Niemöller, and Bonhoeffer. But even the Confessing Church largely protested Nazi interference in their churches rather than taking a broad anti-Nazi stand. Few Confessing Churches actively opposed Nazism, and yet they did more than most, didn't they? As you survey the Christian landscape of Nazi Germany, you are hard-pressed to find much organized resistance. We might wish Adventists had found greater courage to stand up to the Nazis, but they would have stood alone. If Adventists failed to meet the moment, well, so did everyone else. Even late into the 1930s, Adventists in Central Europe were still misreading the situation. The Adventists in Austria numbered about 1,600 spread among 33 congregations, although about a third of the members were in Vienna, the capital. And these were hard-won gains. In 1912, the membership was at 1,200. That is, the church in Austria managed to net 400 members in 20 years. Opposition was fierce, and evangelists found that they had to form things like lecture societies and basically present intellectual-sounding papers in order to speak publicly of Adventist ideas. And even so, a policeman showed up at every meeting, and so Adventists were told to identify themselves as a teacher or a bookseller and list their church as non-denominational. When German troops invaded in 1938, something we refer to as the Anschluss, the conference office in Vienna celebrated by publishing an article, quote, Through God's choice and through God's assistance, our capable Fuhrer Adolf Hitler has become the liberator of Austria, end quote. Liberating them from what? 
An Austrian Adventist historian named Daniel Heinz has the answer. Quote, Apparently their desire for the removal of the Catholic corporate state in Austria did not take into consideration the possible consequences of national socialist rule. End quote. In other words, Adventists in Austria were so fixated on Roman Catholicism as the enemy that they welcomed the Nazis in with open arms. Now, Catholicism was the official religion of the state, and Adventists had struggled for decades to make inroads there because of that. A.G. Daniels once called it, quote, the most intensely Catholic country in all of Europe and possibly in all the world, end quote. So take that, Italy. So the expectation was that the Nazis would dismantle that and bring religious liberty to Austria. One might be able to forgive the German Adventists for welcoming the Nazis in 1933, but what was the excuse in 1938? The Austrian believers knew, they knew of the struggles the church in Germany had been going through. They should have known what that Nazi brand of religious liberty really was. And in case you can't see me, you're not watching the video of this, there are copious amounts of air quotes over religious liberty. Now, when the war broke out, church leaders basically told members that it was a matter of individual conscience, whether they fought or not. Many members, true to their Adventist beliefs, pursued nonviolent assignments in the military, but only about 14% of the 4,000 Austrian Adventists who were drafted in the early years of the war were assigned to medical units. So some of the 86% who were handed guns refused to take them and were often sent to jail or to camps where they often died. One was sent to jail for two years. Just before he was to be released, he was told he was being drafted a second time. Didn't even let the man set foot on free soil. He again refused to pick up a gun and was beheaded at 33 years old. It's easy to look back and say, well, the church caved. They gave up their principles. Okay, that's a conversation we can have. Perhaps they did. But I want you to think about the decapitated man that 33-year-old Adventist, and understand that this was often the price for refusing to take up the gun. And church leaders were telling you, hey, it's up to you. Take it. Don't take it. It's between you and God. It was an insanely difficult time to live. And I think in some in some way, we have a much clearer perspective of what happened back there, right? Because we we're distant from it. We've learned some of the lessons from that era of world history. And we can see clearly because we're not under pressure. But on the other hand, I think sometimes it's, it's easy to speak very flippantly about it. So, you know, you can say that the church gave up their principles in some ways. But we shouldn't be flippant about that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't suggest like, like, you know, like that was easy. Like you and I, oh, psh, yeah, we would have done it. We would have held on to our principles. No big deal. It was not an easy time to live. Now, some Adventists, of course, did take the gun. and they, Some of them got creative with it. One of the more well-known war stories was that of Franz Hazel. When Hazel was drafted, he told an officer, I am a Seventh-day Adventist Christian and a conscientious objector. I would like to serve as a medic. The officer just stared at him. Seventh-day Adventist? Never heard of it. He asked others in the room, the other soldiers, any of you guys ever heard of Seventh-day Adventists? They shook their heads, except one of the soldiers called back. Yeah, they're like the Jews. They keep Sabbath. Well, okay, that didn't endear Hazel to anyone. And he was assigned as a private in Pioneer Battalion 699. 
The Pioneer Battalion was basically, it was, a, it was formed of crack assault infantry who could build bridges and fortifications and also knew how to blow up enemy fortifications. Basically, if you've ever watched a World War II movie and saw a German with a flamethrower, he was a pioneer. Hazel is famous for having thrown away his pistol, without anyone seeing, of course, and then carving out a piece of wood, painting it black, and placing it in his holster for the entire war. He didn't want to be tempted to shoot somebody. He served on the Eastern Front and survived the war, claiming that he kept the Sabbath, never ate pork, which is a minor miracle in the German army. Franz was apparently only one of seven men out of 1,200 in his unit to survive the war. And I used to enjoy hearing Hazel's grandson, Michael, share these family stories in his Hebrew class at Southern Adventist University. Go enjoy that privilege while you still can. No doubt there were thousands more Adventists who were caught up in the Nazi machine whose stories we will never know. Some, like Hazel, probably refused to carry a gun. Others did carry a gun. Some refused to do any work on Sabbath, and others reasoned that God would forgive them if they did. Some avoided the draft. Others looked for a path through the draft, finding a way to serve in good conscience. Some were publicly supportive of the Nazis. Others resisted the Nazis, hated the Nazis, thought Hitler was a horrible human being. There is no single Adventist storyline during the dark decade of Nazi rule. Most Adventists did what they thought best honored God. Daniel Hines once asked the question, could we have helped more? And specifically, could we have helped Jewish Adventists like Sarah Nagelberg? Sarah joined the Adventist church later in her life, 1930. It wasn't long, however, before she needed constant medical care. And when the Gestapo began interrogating her in 1940... She confessed that she didn't know whether she was still a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It had been so long since she had had contact with the church that she was sent to an extermination camp. Max Israel Monk had a similar story. He was another Jewish Adventist whose story, well, just, it just breaks your heart. Monk resigned from his church when the Nazis came to power in 1933, in order to spare his congregation from any trouble with the government, he saw what was coming better than, you know, most everyone. Because he was a Jew, right? I, you know, when you're, when you're a, a hated minority in a country, you pick up on things that the majority does not. You pick up on things, you know... <laughs> Monk is not there saying, oh, wow, Hitler's a vegetarian. That's great. You know, he's listening to what Hitler is saying about the Jews, and that alarms him. He doesn't just kind of say, oh, yeah, you know, it's just rhetoric. Who cares? Like, as a Jew, right, he's picking up on that. This is not good. He, he sees the writing on the wall when Hitler took power. He sees what this is going to mean, even if most of his fellow church members did not. So he resigns because he says there's going to come a time where me being a Jew is going to be dangerous for my fellow church members, so the most responsible thing I can do is, is resign my membership. He did time in Buchenwald, the concentration camp. When he was released in 1938, his conference initially tried to help him get out of Germany, tried to help him find a job somewhere else in Europe. Didn't happen, though. Proved impossible. So the conference president told Monk that he could no longer have any contact with the church. Church members were told likewise, don't go visit this guy. 
Don't write to him. Stay away from him. And so Monk was on his own. And yet Monk still paid tithes and offerings to his church that he was no longer a member of, to his church that would not come visit him, that would not write him, that could not help him. Monk's daughter wrote to the leader of the church's welfare program, the same program Holda Yost had led before her death, asking if there were any other Jewish Adventists who needed help. And the church leader replied, I have not counted them yet. As if, and this is how that statement has been taken ever since, as if he was too busy to get around to those requests for aid, as if he was afraid of opening those letters. Monk spent the early 1940s moving from camp to camp, and despite church leaders uh, telling them not to visit, two local members did visit his family and occasionally bring them food. Monk somehow survived, and when the war was over, he asked to become a Seventh-day Adventist church member again, asking the church that had failed him for forgiveness and freely offering the same. And that story just strikes me. The, the, the idea of this man paying tithes and offerings to a church that was too afraid to help him. Oh, I mean, they tried a little bit, right? But it was too hard. He gets picked up, sent from camp to camp to camp. Undoubtedly, his life is a, is a whole different level of miserable than you and I are listening or are used to. Hard life. And when it's all over, he comes back to that church and forgives them. Still pays tithes and offering. Still is a loyal member of a church that I would say wasn't very loyal to him. You know, I mean, hide this man. Take care of this man's family. Don't be ashamed to be seen with this man. You know, he still loved his church. And when it was all over, it was like nothing had ever happened. Well, while Monk was doing his first round in a concentration camp, another Jewish Adventist bitterly confessed, like frightened deer, we seek a hiding place. This man had been an Adventist for over 30 years, but when he asked his church in Vienna for help, the church told him that since he's a Jew, he needs to look to the Jewish community in Vienna for help, not the church. Czechoslovakia, a local church, refused to disfellowship nine Jewish members, and so the conference did it for them, not even informing them. Putting a sign on the church's door that says, Jews prohibited. Now, this was not always the case. As we noticed in previous episodes, a group of Adventists in Latvia hid Jews, not Jewish Adventists, but Jews in their homes. One would later become an Adventist pastor, by the way. In Hungary, the Union president railed against anti-Semitism he heard all around him, saying, quote, Neither God nor the Hungarian homeland could ever forgive such a sin. Then he added, You only follow Jesus faithfully if you protect the Jews. End quote. And he backed that up. He backed those words up by personally arranging to hide 50 Jews. Not to mention the most famous story of them all, that of Jean Weidner. He was the pastor's kid whose network saved 1,000 people, including 800 Jews. Weidner was arrested, of course, but he always found a way to escape right before he was executed. I mean, one time, in the night before he was to be executed, he jumped out of a three-story window ran away. Or crawled away. I don't know how he got out 
after falling 30 feet, but I guess you'd be motivated if your execution was tomorrow. He lived long enough to stand in Washington, D.C. at the opening of the Holocaust Museum in 1993. So could we have done more for them? Sure. And you and I, we can sit down sometime and, and talk about what we could have done or what we should have done. There are lessons waiting for us in the ruins of this Nazi story. The Adventist Church was just as eager afterwards to, to move on from the war as everybody else. So most of the names I mentioned in this episode might be new to you. But I think it's important to tell their stories, even if their stories didn't have happy endings, even if these stories weren't cinematic, they're not going to be turned into the next Mel Gibson movie, even if they weren't what we would consider particularly gripping stories. We're drawn to the story of Franz Hazel because it was so heroic, so, so cinematic, so principled, so squeaky clean, so perfect. We aren't as drawn to stories like that of, pa of a pastor named Erwin Bauermann, who was also denied an assignment to serve as a medic in the army and who spent the war in jail. Not an exciting story. As far as I know, no angels visited him. He didn't baptize 150 people in jail, right? So those stories get told less. But his story matters. Sometimes I get frustrated when, when people go on about all the ways the church is failing. We get defensive about such things, don't we? I mean, everybody has a criticism these days. So I think we can leave this dark trilogy with a positive answer to Daniel Hines' question. Could we have done more for them? I think the solution is to look for people in your city, in your church, in your country, who are in need of your courage. People it is popular to marginalize, to demonize, to make jokes about, to stereotype the people who it might be dangerous to help. Chances are you don't live in an authoritarian regime, but every society has those they look down upon. And if we don't help them, if we don't risk our reputations for them, do you think we're going to do it when soldiers are jackbooting down our streets? Draw near to those who are most misunderstood, who are most in need of your help. And if we can summon a little bit of courage for that today, perhaps by the grace of God, we can stand strong when it matters the most. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, 
Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.